Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Ian Stewart, a mathematics professor at the University of Warwick and a prolific author whose latest book is Calculating the Cosmos. If you would like to read a book that, in my opinion, represents the nicest job of presenting astronomy and cosmology in one volume since Isaac Asimov wrote The Universe half a century ago, this is absolutely the one to get. In addition, for those of us who are lovers of math, this book does a far better job than Asimov of presenting the close relationship between mathematics, astronomy, and cosmology. Ian, welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thank you for having me on it. It's a pleasure. Ian, how were astronomy and mathematics integrated in the ancient world? They were very much hand in glove in the ancient world. In fact, if you go back uh, to Babylonian times, so we're talking... 1500 BC, 2000 BC, um, they are using mathematics to record the motion of the planets, um, to understand uh, all sorts of other astronomical effects that they can see in the sky. It's things you can see with the naked eye, um, but they are already using quite sophisticated mathematical methods to try and understand what's going on. And when you get to, let's say, India around 600 AD, Math is a sub-branch of astronomy. <laughs> the math textbooks aren't math textbooks. They're astronomy books with a chapter on math at the back. <laughs> but they're, they, they're using the math. They're using trigonometry. They're, they're really understanding the geometry of how the planets and stars move and how the moon moves in the sky, all of this sort of stuff. Um, but they're, they're seeing mathematics as the tool that you need if you're an astronomer. So uh, astronomy is actually driving quite a bit of math. But then, of course, as time goes on, we start to get astronomy throwing up problems for the mathematicians to solve, which require the creation of new mathematics to do it. And then after that, you know, sometimes math is coming up with things that the astronomers then go and look for. Sometimes it's the other way around. And, of course, mathematicians and astronomers are also doing all sorts of other things that aren't related to that particular interaction. Well, when you talk about new mathematics being required, we've got to talk about Newton. And how did Newton's Principia influence the way science is done, as well as the way we look at the universe? I think Newton's Principia is one of the greatest, most important books that was ever written. Um, Second it could math. well be. You know, vir- virtually the most um, important because what what Newton showed everybody was that there are mathematical patterns in the way that nature behaves, and that if you understand the mathematics, you can gain control over and bigger understanding of the natural world. And he he did this um, very, very effectively. Uh, I mean, before Newton, you've got, you've got people like Kepler and Galileo who have, um, themselves found mathematical patterns in how nature works. Kepler realized that 
the planet Mars moves in an ellipse. He didn't believe it at first, convinced himself the ellipse is the right shape, but it was just a shape. That was it. It basically worked for Mars. It probably worked for the other planets. He didn't really have the data for the other planets, but, you know, there wasn't any explanation of why it's an ellipse or, or kind of what's going on behind the scenes to create the ellipse. And Galileo, he understands the motion of bodies on the surface of the Earth. Um, so if you, if you throw a ball in the air, then the shape it forms is another one of these famous Greek curves of parabola. And Galileo understood that. But these were sort of um, these were very important steps forwards. But with Newton, it all comes together. And Newton says, look, there are these laws. You can express them mathematically. And in fact, the, the most natural expression of them mathematically required an entire new branch of mathematics, which Newton also pioneered, which was calculus. So Newton and also a German called Gottfried Leibniz independently, semi-independently came up with this whole mathematical technique of calculus. But the the ironic thing is, if you read Newton's Principia, there's no calculus in it. I know that is funny. <laughs> and and the, the, the reason is not that he didn't need it to understand what was going on, but he decided, because it was such a new and um, somewhat controversial idea, that he would rephrase all of his calculus arguments in terms of classical Euclid-style geometry. So he had a kind of geometrical principle, which is equivalent to the way you think in calculus. And instead of using the calculus, he used that principle when he presented his results to the world. But it's fairly clear when he was thinking about it, he would start from more of a calculus way of thinking. You know, so he, it's, a pleasure, it's a pleasure to talk to somebody who has the same reverence for Newton that I do. And it's astounding how Newton's theory of universal gravitation, which is fairly easy to state mathematically, continues to reveal surprises, some of which occur as the result of mathematical and computer explorations, and some of which occur as a result of our scientific discoveries. That's right. Uh, I mean, the, the you, you might think, I mean, Albert Einstein came up with a theory of gravity which is more accurate than Newton's theory. It explains certain things, such as a problem with the planet Mercury, which, which Newton's law of gravitation doesn't quite fit. But nonetheless, for most purposes, even today, we still use Newton. Uh, when NASA sends um, space probes out to visit the planets, the calculations are almost entirely using Newtonian gravity because that, that's, that's good enough. Um, that, that really does the job, and it's simpler. It's much simpler than Einstein, as you'd expect. So Newton's law of gravity and his laws of motion are still very much with us at cutting-edge science, either getting space probes out to the right place or um, forcing the mathematicians to come to grips with new phenomena. Uh, the, um, the one that's particularly important is, is chaos. You've heard of chaos theory. Well, one of the first places, oh, yeah, chaos. This is where it sounds like it's just sort of everything moving around at random and there aren't any patterns, but it's not like that. There are patterns in the behavior, but they are they're beneath the surface. It doesn't look as if there are patterns until you get very clever at digging out exactly what's going on. So chaos is where you've got something that looks as if it's random, but actually it's obeying completely regular laws. 
and Newton's laws of gravity produce chaos. And this was discovered about 120 years ago um, in what they call the three-body problem, which is trying to understand how three bodies move under gravity. Let's say the, the moon goes around the Earth, but the Earth's going around the sun, and all three bodies are influencing each other. So mathematically, that's actually a horribly complicated problem. With two bodies, you get Kepler's ellipse for the orbits. With three bodies, it's all over the place. You get all sorts of complicated things. And um, Henri Poincaré, who was one of the great French mathematicians at around about the 1900 period, um, he was competing for a prize. And he discovered while he was competing for the prize that in a very simplified model of the three-body problem, it wasn't even the most general three bodies uh, two of them had the same mass, and the third one was so so, so lightweight that it basically it didn't attract the other two at all. And even then, you get this chaotic motion. And this just opened up a whole new area for math, which really we didn't appreciate what Poincaré was on about until the 1960s. And it's only over the last 50 years or so that mathematicians and physicists and astronomers have started to realize that the chaotic effects are all over the place in the universe. They are everywhere. But in astronomy, very often the chaos takes a long, long time to show up. So the Earth's orbit is chaotic, but it takes about 200 million years before it makes a big difference. I'll tell you, there was so much in your book that I found new and surprising. And one of the things that I hadn't seen before was that Newton's theory of universal gravitation allows orbits to exist in the shape of a figure eight. That blew me away. Yeah, no, that blew me away the first time I uh, was, was told this. Uh, it's, it could have been discovered quite a long time ago, but it's a fairly recent discovery because, firstly, you have to be stupid enough to think it might be possible. And, <laughs> and secondly, the, the easiest way to show that it can happen is actually with, with a pretty fast computer. And until recently, people didn't have the computational power to do this. There are clever mathematical tricks once somebody's found it, but it was actually discovered first on a computer. It's very special. Basically, you have... Think of three stars, all exactly the same mass. No difference whatsoever. So it's three, three exact copies of the same thing. And then it's possible to arrange for them to chase each other round and round an orbit that is shaped like a figure eight. And um, what's happening is when one of them is on one side of the figure eight and one of them somewhere near the, the middle and the other one's on the far side, you can sort of see that the force is acting on them cancel out. And as they chase each other around, the gravitational forces balance each other out very delicately to keep everything on this figure eight, follow my leader orbit. Um, now, in fact, that orbit mathematically, it, it's stable. That is, if you uh, give it a little disturbance, it won't change too much. So actually, that's quite important. It means that conceivably this could happen and there is i think one astronomer who reckons that um there's almost certainly somewhere in the universe there are three stars almost the same mass if it's slightly different it'll still work chasing each other in something that's pretty much figure eight shaped there could be at least one of those somewhere in the universe be very hard to find um, there might even be one per galaxy but his his calculations suggest that's about as frequent as it will get in the real world. 
But as a if he wants to place a bet, I'll yeah, play. I mean, as, as a you know, <laughs> as, as a theoretical, just the mere fact that this exists in the mathematics is fascinating. And in fact, there there, it is, there are it lots is. like it. They've now discovered very complicated, much more complicated shapes than figure eights, and with let's say twelve equal mass bodies chasing each other round and round and round this very complicated choreography, as they call it. It's like a dance. Yeah, the, I remember parametric curves in, or polar coordinate, mm-hmm. uh, curves and polar coordinates that you see. Maybe they have something like the three, four, and five-leaved roses. It, that's the kind of thing, but they can get even more um, twisted and tangled and overlapping. In, in um, they're, they're not completely symmetric, these shapes. The figure eight's a very nice symmetric shape, but some of these choreographies have, have funny twisty bits that stick out in one direction, and there's nothing else like that. It's almost like a random doodle. You just draw draw a closed curve that crosses itself a lot of times, and then you can chase planets or stars around that curve. Get get the right curve, get you the know, speed right, you know, make it work. You know, you mentioned Einstein a little earlier. How do Einstein's theories of special and general relativity come into play when we drive our cars using satellite navigation? Satellite navigation is one of the most important real-world applications of, of Einstein. And it's um, it, it's fairly straightforward. What you have to understand with Einstein's theory is that um, the force of gravity actually slows time down a little bit. So gravity and time, it affects the flow of time. And also, if objects are moving very fast in relativity, that also affects how um, they don't quite follow the, exactly the same path at exactly the same time as you would expect on the basis of Newtonian mechanics. They have to be traveling pretty fast, but uh, you know, it would be, if, if a body is traveling very fast, it, it shrinks, time slows down. So if you think of a um, sat-nav, what's happening is that there's a whole set, lot of satellites up in orbit and they're actually sending timing signals down to the gadget in your car. And slight differences in the timings from the different satellites let the electronic circuit there do some interesting math to work out whereabouts on the surface of our planet your car is located. This is going on all the time. So basically the the car is listening to the satellites, comparing the timing of the signals and doing a bit of triangulation to work out where it is. However, if you don't use Einstein, if you try and do this with Newtonian mechanics, your car will rapidly end up in the wrong place. Um, The calculation will put you on the wrong place on the surface of the Earth. It will slowly drift out of position. And there are two things going on that you have to compensate for. One is that the satellite is moving fairly fast, So you have to apply a relativistic correction to the timing to compensate for the changes in timing that occur in relativity for fast-moving objects. The other thing that's happening is the satellites are moving in the Earth's gravitational field. So you have to apply a second correction to the timing to compensate for the effect of gravity. So in every car sat-nav, the computer chip inside that does the sums, It's got two different bits of relativity built in, one for high speeds, one for gravity. And without those in there, 
it doesn't work. It will just put you in the wrong place. You'll, you'll, you'll start out and it'll say, yeah, you're in, the, you're in the street outside your house. And an hour later, it'll put you in the wrong street. And three hours later, it'll put you in the wrong part of the city. And a day later, it'll put you in the wrong city altogether. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It occurred to me as you were talking about this that there have always been these very precise tests of Einstein's theory. It occurs to me that when you take all the cars that are on satellite navigation and the fact that they all get to the right place simultaneously, that's probably as powerful a test of Einstein's theories of relativity as has yet been performed. I think so, yeah, even bearing in mind that occasionally your sat nav ends you up in the middle of a field full of cows by mistake. Uh, but that's, <laughs> Only in that's not really Einstein's fault. <laughs> <laughs> you know, getting away from the solar system, because one of the things that I'd like to point out to our listeners is that your book is really comprehensive. It covers the astronomy of the solar system, the astronomy of individual stars, the astronomy of galaxies, and the astronomy or cosmology of the universe as a whole. And I certainly think, even though we could spend an entire talk quite delightedly on what was going on just in the near neighborhood of Earth. Let's expand it a little. What rotation curves for galaxies does Newtonian dynamics suggest, and why were they, the observed curves so different from what was expected? This is one of the big mysteries, and um, so the, the jargon for this is dark matter. As soon as you get astronomers and cosmologists talking about what they call dark matter, then we're in this area. So um, let, let's start with galaxies. Okay, so we now know what galaxies are basically, um, they're, they're, they're quite often spiral in shape or they can be fairly circular. Um, what they are is about 200, 300 billion stars or interacting with each other via gravity and the whole thing is spinning. So it's kind of like a, a flat plate spinning uh, with stars on it. But at different distances from the centre, the stars are moving at different speeds. Uh, the astronomers know how to observe this um, using very clever equipment. Um, uh, you heard of the Doppler effect? You know what that is? Um, when you hear an ambulance, you hear a police car or an ambulance coming past, and when it's come, as it comes past you, the siren changes from a high pitch to a slightly lower pitch as it's going past you. Um, so this is because the sound waves are being emitted from a moving object. Uh, but you're stationary and you're observing these. So when it's coming towards you, uh, you get the speed of the car is added to the speed of the sound, whereas when it's going away from you, the speed of the car is subtracted from the speed of the sound. And this affects the waves coming in and therefore affects the sound. Well, it's like that, but it's with light, and it's also relativistic, so the figures aren't quite the same. But by observing the light emitted by moving stars, you can figure out how fast they're going. And when the astronomers measured what they call the rotation curve of the galaxy, which is basically how fast the stars are moving at a given distance from the centre, what they found was a bit of a surprise. Um, now, that they do make some assumptions, and I'm probably going to come back to those assumptions because mathematicians always question assumptions. <laughs> and the whole subject is full of assumptions, but your, your job as a mathematician is to say, 
Yeah, but suppose it wasn't like that. But the assumption is that at a given distance, all of the stars are rotating at the same speed. And they're actually going in circles. So the whole thing's going in circles, but the speed changes as you get further out. Now, what a very standard mathematical model based on Newton's law of motion tells us is as you go further out, the speed should should tail off. It should slow down, get far enough out, and it actually is as if the stars are hardly moving at all. What the astronomers found was very different. To begin with, near the middle, it's moving slowly, and then as you go further out, it speeds up. And then when you get to a certain point, it levels off, and the speed is pretty much constant from that point on. So if you go sort of halfway out through the galaxy, it starts to level off, and then three-quarters of the way out, it hasn't slowed down like the math says it should. It's going at about the same speed, and this just seems to carry on. And it, the, 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 the shape of the rotation curve that is a graph of this picture is it's a bit bumpy, but basically it grows and then flattens off, whereas the standard mathematical model says that it should actually start high and just get slower and slower and slower and slower towards zero. So this is a big discrepancy. And there are at least three different ways of explaining it or trying to explain it. The one that the astronomers and cosmologists prefer, and I can understand why, is it's got nothing to do with the mathematical model being wrong. It's got nothing to do with Newton's law of gravity being wrong. It's that there's a whole pile of matter out there in the galaxy that we're not observing. And so when you do the calculations based on the distribution of the mass in the galaxy, you're missing out a lot of stuff. And that's changing because if you put that in, then you get the, start to get the right shape for the rotation curve. So the idea is there is this special kind of stuff called dark matter. There's a lot of it. There's probably, um, well, of the matter in the universe, they reckon about 80% plus is dark matter in order to make these rotation curves work properly. So ever since a lot of people have been searching for this dark matter, they figured out that it can't be, it's different from all of the normal matter that we encounter in our daily lives. It's made of different fundamental particles. It's not made of protons, neutrons and electrons or the, the next generation of stuff like that, which is quarks and gluons and fancy things of that kind. All of the things the particle physicists are studying in their big accelerators, dark matter is not like that. It's something different. The problem is, essentially the only way anyone's ever detected it is through these um, things like the rotation curve of galaxies where the um, what you observe doesn't fit the mathematical model based on Newton. So what you say is, well, suppose we throw in a lot of dark matter, and if you put the right amount in the right place, you get the right shape. Well, that, that in a sense, is telling you if it is dark matter, that's where it must be. Okay? Yeah. yeah. Now, an alternative which is not so fashionable um, but certainly has a certain amount going for it is 
you know, it's a bit like when Einstein overthrows Newton. We have Newton's law of gravity. It works pretty well in the solar system for most things. But when you come to the planet Mercury, Mercury is moving differently. And for a while, they thought, oh, there must be another planet closer to the sun than Mercury. They called it Vulcan. And that's disturbing Mercury, and that explains it. But then when they looked for Vulcan, it wasn't there. And then Einstein said, no, 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 what it is, you need a different law of gravity. And if you change the law of gravity, then Mercury makes sense, and you don't need Vulcan. So there's an alternative explanation of these rotation curve problems, um, which is, don't throw in special kinds of matter that nobody seems to be able to find. Let's slightly change the law of gravity. You don't need to change it very much. You only need to change it so that at large distances and when things are moving very slowly, the whole, the way the motion works, the way the forces work is not quite the same as either Newton or Einstein would um, predict. So there's a thing called um, modified Newtonian dynamics, MOND, which is one of the best developed alternative gravitational theories. Actually, there are hundreds of these. <laughs> Nobody ever talks about. <laughs> if, if you read the journals, you start to see that you know, every, every, a lot of people have got their own versions of this. Now, the problem with that is, okay, yep, that might be the explanation, but how do you test it? You can't test it just by using the same data that you use to um, develop it in the first place. So it's difficult to test. But a third possibility has emerged recently, um, which is intriguing. It's another piece of math. Maybe the mathematical model of stars in a galaxy all going around in circles combined with a simplification that's always used on the model, which is you treat the galaxy as if it's almost a, as if it's a fluid, as if it's, it's not made up of discrete stars. It's, it's, it's like a soup. It's a sort of star soup, and the stars are smeared out continuously. Now, real galaxies aren't like that. The stars are very definite, discrete bodies. I mean, the nearest star to us is four and a half light years away, um, and that distance is absolutely enormous compared to the size of the sun. So the stars are like little points with huge distances between them. But the astronomers are modelling them as if they're a continuous soup with no gaps in it at all. And for a long time, that seemed to be a fairly harmless, sensible assumption. It's a very standard way that people do applied math. It's, it's called continuum models. It's, um, it's how we do fluid dynamics. It's how we do all sorts of physics. It's got a long track record. It works beautifully. But um, Don Sari, who is a, an American mathematician who's an expert on many-body um, gravitation uh, realized that um, if you model a galaxy not as a continuous soup but as a lot of separate point masses which is much closer to what it really is then the traditional model that gives the expected rotation curve slowly dying away doesn't work certainly not if everything's going around in circles and he has some very clear calculations to show that it doesn't work um, the problem is with that that the um, the best understood example where it doesn't work 
has the stars at the outer edges of the galaxy going too fast? So we have one mathematical model, the star soup, where they're going too slowly. We have reality, which is where it levels off at some constant speed. And we have the discrete model that we understand where they're going too fast. <laughs> but that does suggest that maybe there's a compromise somewhere in between whereby having, whereby being a little more accurate in your model as to what the stars in the galaxy are actually doing. Maybe Newton's right, the observed rotation curves are right, you don't need to change the law of gravity, and you don't need dark matter. It's all to do with the mathematical model and getting that right. So at the moment, I think cosmologists would still put most of their money on dark matter. But as the years go by and more and more experiments fail to find it, I think there is a sort of growing feeling that maybe um, we need to change the law of gravity. But it's only very recently that one or two mathematicians have started to say, you know, maybe we should just do the whole calculation differently from the beginning. Um, possibly the whole thing will disappear. So I think it's a very exciting and interesting situation. But it's one of these cases where science at the moment, you know, there's lots of good ideas, but nobody is sure exactly what's right. You know, this reminds me of Richard Feynman's comment about whether or not there was a theory of everything around. He said if uh, there's a theory of everything, it would be absolutely beautiful. But if it turns out that the universe is like an onion and we just keep peeling off a layer to find a deeper layer underneath, well, that's the way it is. But I've got to tell you, having spent my life looking at mathematics and being so awed and overwhelmed by the ability of physics and astronomy to incorporate what is actually relatively simple mathematics in describing phenomena, I'm a big fan of simple theories for the way the universe works. And I really hate to discard Newtonian dynamics or the special theory of relativity in favor of what seemed to me a lot of ad hoc theories. I'd much rather go with the better computational model. I, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I mean, as a mathematician, I, I would love it if it turns out that dark matter exists and what you've got is a fantastic prediction of something that absolutely nobody expects. It's absolutely mind-blowing. There's all this other matter around, and it's it's the math of galaxies that gave us the clue about it. That would be wonderful. But maybe it's not going to happen. If that's not going to happen, I would then I'd be inclined to put my money on this kind of let's model galaxies more realistically. Let's really understand galaxy dynamics better. And let's see... You know, um, bear in mind that the, the matter we observe in the galaxies is definitely not everything that's there. <laughs> there is a lot of perfectly ordinary matter that we can't see, but there, the general feeling is there just isn't enough of that. But if you combine some of that, you know, if there's some extra stuff, perfectly normal matter, but we're not seeing it, and there are effects in the way you model it, which could mislead you into getting the wrong theoretical predictions... Um, let's let's get the math right. That, that I think would be my. Um, <laughs> I know yeah, I that's, prefer that's to go that way. Um, and if at the end of the day it becomes well, we're just going to have to change the law of gravity, as you were saying. You say, well, oh, it would be well, <laughs> particularly if the only evidence that you need to do it is that 
these astronomical observations don't match up with what the theory is predicting. You know, it's, we, we, we're going to be in this horrible position where there are 500 different alternatives to Newtonian or Einsteinian gravity and no way to tell which of those 500 is better than any other. Um, and, th- th- you know, th- th- then um, we just won't know where we are. And that could go on for a long time. It, yeah, but it's just so much nicer when there's a prediction from the mathematics or the pattern or something, and then you find it. Like when Mendeleev used the periodic table to predict the existence of elements hitherto unknown, and they found them. And when they find planets that are where they should be, and when Einstein tells you that uh, the precession of Mercury is explained by uh, is explained by uh, relativity, and you get Eddington's eclipse uh, expedition to confirm it, it's just so much nicer when that happens. And we have so much more powerful tools nowadays, and we're making so many more observations. And dark matter hasn't shown up. And uh, so, if you know, it seems to me like by now it should show up. But let's get to some other questions that uh, I found in your book, because it one of the things that uh, is happening in this interview is we're covering just a few topics in your fascinating book. And I could do three interviews with you, but let's get a few of the other more global problems. For instance, cosmology. What is inflation and what problems does it solve? Does it solve any problems it wasn't originally devised to solve? I think one of the problems is that um, on the whole, it it does a wonderful job of solving the problem it was devised to solve. And I'll I'll try and explain what that is in a minute. Um, In fact, let's start with that because that's probably the way to go. Okay, so we... um, Fast forwarding through quite a a lot of science, um, we get to the discovery of the Big Bang and the expanding universe. Yeah. Uh, So it comes in the the order in which this happens is that Hubble discovers that the universe is expanding, that distant stars and galaxies are actually moving away from us. Um, And this has been going on, if you kind of rerun it, reverse engineer where it came from, it looks like about 13 and a half, 13.8 billion years ago, um, everything was all in the same place. And then it just started expanding from that. And it's, it's, not that, it, it's not that the universe is expanding into something. It's the space itself is expanding. <laughs> um, so we've got this um, expanding universe. And we know roughly how long it's been doing that because you can just sort of run everything backwards and see where it all piles up in one place. And then you look at the actual distribution of the matter. It's clumpy. Um, There's a lot of big voids with not much stuff in them, but there are a lot of things like galaxies where you've got all sorts of, you know, hundreds of billions of stars all clumped together in what by – Um, the standards of the size of the universe is a pretty small region. So it's very lumpy. And it's too lumpy for the time that has elapsed. Um, The idea is that as it's expanding, it starts out pretty smoothly distributed. Now, gravity does cause stuff to clump together. That's one of the things gravity is for. It's an attractive force. Um, But gravity alone really can't explain 
the um, on the one hand the lumpiness of matter, and on the other hand the vast amount of empty space in between the galaxies, where basically in Einstein's terms the the universe is very flat. Gravity in Einstein's theory is curvature. If space-time is sharply curved, then bodies moving through the curved region follow bent paths, and that looks like a force acting on them, and we call that gravity. So in the neighborhood of a star or a galaxy, space is curved, but out in the void between the galaxies, it's very, very flat. Even between the stars, it's very, very flat. And it is simultaneously too flat and the matter is too clumpy. And if you go back to the Big Bang and follow the natural course of development, you can't get both of those happening at the same time. If you get a very flat universe, then the matter should be smeared out. And if you get a very clumpy one like we've got, it shouldn't be that flat. So this was a big puzzle. And it's difficult to see how you can get both of those things working. Now, this is where inflation comes in. It's a very clever idea. And it basically says, if you're prepared to accept some extra bits of rather conjectural physics, um, some, some particles and fields that we don't actually know exist, what could happen is that it's at a certain point early on in the expansion of the universe, it suddenly expands enormously fast in a very short period of time. I mean, the, it's the, these are, if you start writing down the numbers, these are one followed by an awful lot of zeros. This is very, very, very <laughs> big, very fast, very short, no point, no, 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 lots of noughts, one seconds, and the universe multiplies in size by one followed by 78 zeros. <laughs> okay, this is inflation. Now, the idea is that the um, as the universe inflates, this, this suddenly it's I, I would say it's a, it's a bit like imagine you had a you had sometimes like a very flexible sheet of toast perhaps it's some sort of pancake that's made of very flexible stuff and you you put some lumps of jam on it um or some maple syrup or something and it's a bit lumpy and then you suddenly expand the whole thing enormously which smears out all the maple syrup as it expands and you get this very thin coating with a few lumps here and there uh, the lumps are fairly far spread apart, and in between, it's all pretty smooth. And basically, what the inflation uh, suggestion is, that, is that this kind of thing happened to the universe. And they can do some very um, detailed, accurate calculations. And there are observations now of the what they call the cosmic microwave background. This is a kind of low-level buzz of radio noise that's coming in from all directions. And it's all, it's very low level. Um, it's almost exactly the same in all directions, but there are slight fluctuations. And if you do the statistics of the fluctuations and you match them up to inflation models, you actually get a very good fit. You do have a lot of different variants of the inflationary model, and you have to tweak some adjustable knobs and parameters to get this fit, which is one of the things that I'm um, I mean, you were saying earlier, what you loved was the way that 
math predicts a planet is in a particular place and you look and there it is. Um, now, in, in relativity or Newtonian gravity, basically you have got all of the physical constants built in as hard numbers. You don't get to change them. You've only got one prediction, basically. You can't adjust anything to make it fit. It either works or it doesn't. And the wonderful thing is, in the past, it works. Now, inflation, it yeah, works, yeah. <laughs> it, the inflation models aren't quite like that. They do have some things that you can tweak. So if you do, if you do the calculations and it doesn't quite fit what's observed, you can go back and tweak a few constants and try again. And you can kind of fit the model to the observations. But nonetheless, the inflationary model is a really pretty good fit to a lot of the things that cosmologists have been able to observe. And I think they've been pretty clever to observe them and uh, that the theory they've come up with is a pretty clever theory. But the problem is it involves a number of ingredients, which are a bit like dark matter, um, nobody's actually observed directly. You have to have a thing called an inflaton field, which is some unknown quantum field that sets off the inflationary process. And nobody's ever observed one. You know, uh, and then conveniently dies and out. Just conveniently dies out. Only- and then we come to one of the bigger problems, which is um, that some cosmologists said, well, does it die out? If you actually take the whole thing seriously, the, the point, it can happen anywhere at any time. <laughs> uh, so so you, you, you can be... Now you've made yes, that's it. So you're, 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 you're sitting, sitting watching TV with the cat on your lap and suddenly you, the cat, and the television set expand by a factor of 10 to the power 78 in 10 to the minus 35 seconds. And this could happen. It's called eternal inflation. At any point, at any time, anywhere in the universe, the whole inflation process could start all over again, and we're not observing that. It seems to have happened once and then switched off. And that's um, if you, you know, if you want to, if if you're um, skeptical about the theory, this this is this is quite a reasonable source for skepticism. So. Yes, it explains a lot of things very nicely. It's very clever. Um, and But unfortunately, it also seems to predict some other things that just don't make sense. So, you know, I think this is creative science. I think the point is that we haven't figured all this stuff out properly yet. There's lots of very good ideas. Well, I think this is part of the joy it's of doing the joy science, of science, is trying to exactly. get Exactly. So, um, although in the book I... If you watch television programs about cosmology, you tend to get this rather sanitized picture presented to you of we know what's going on. You've got the Big Bang, then you've got inflation, then you've got dark matter. The universe behaves like this. Everything fits. It's perfect. Done. Um, And I don't blame the cosmologists and astronomers for uh, this impression coming over. I think this is the way TV programs get made. Um, It's difficult to make a popular science TV program, which spends a lot of time saying, well, actually, we don't really know about this. You know, maybe there's another alternative and there are five other theories we could do. And so the the audience just switches off because they want to be told what's going on. But actually, what's going on in cosmology is a number of different alternatives competing with each other and scientists trying to find out what's actually happening. But of course, being human, scientists always, um, they kind of back their own hunches. 
And a lot of very good science has happened because people have been <laughs> have been too stupid to give up on an idea that doesn't seem to work. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, does you this, know, earlier we, does this relate to dark energy at uh, all? Dark energy. That's the third of these um, Dei ex machina in cosmology. Um, there's some very convincing evidence that the universe is expanding faster and faster. The expansion is accelerating as you get further away. Um, basically, to begin with, what everyone thought was the universe starts with this, this big bang, it starts expanding, and then gravity slowly hauls everything back in again. So the expansion slows down and perhaps eventually comes to a halt, or maybe it just sort of balances out so it can keep on going but getting slower and slower and slower and slower and slower. Um, but this evidence, which is again to do with looking at distant galaxies and how fast they're moving, at some point um, a few billion years into the expansion, it starts to speed up. And the suggestion is that there is some sort of energy source it could be actually in the vacuum between the stars, which is kind of pushing stuff apart. So they call that dark energy. And um, there's actually more dark energy. If, if the current theories are right, um, matter and dark matter are themselves only a small part of what's going on, and most of what's out there um, is dark energy. So we have several mysteries and each new mystery seems to be bigger than the previous one and we're in this position of almost everything in the universe is totally different from what we normally find around us in everyday life and on the other hand nobody can actually find any of it it's just inferred by uh, measurements of the motion of bodies under gravity um, but dark energy, I think, is um, is particularly interesting. There is one potential explanation using quantum mechanics. Um, there's a thing called vacuum energy, which people in quantum theory know all about. Because in quantum theory, you can have a vacuum and suddenly a pair of particles will appear from nowhere. Um, but one will be a particle, one will be an antiparticle. They sort of cancel each other out, which is why they can come from zero. Uh, so stuff can just spontaneously come into being and then they can combine and disappear again and this sort of foaming effect uh, creates a form of dark energy the problem is when you do the math the quantum theory says there should be much more of it than we observe <laughs> spectacularly more of it yeah <laughs> 120 times as much <laughs> um so um it, it, this is generally considered to be probably the worst quantitative prediction ever made by science <laughs> and yet and yet it could be pointing in the right sort of direction so um so dark energy is is intriguing um i think it's it may have more i think the observations that suggest it exists in some ways are more reliable than the dark matter ones the problem with dark matter is you've got several totally different possible types of explanation could be dark matter could be different law of gravity could be we've got sums wrong which of those is it i think with dark energy there's a general feeling look 
this, this accelerating expansion is happening um, and nobody really knows why. Um, you know, there really does seem to be a genuine mystery there. There are some mathematical calculations suggesting that um, if you were to modify relativity very slightly, you can actually get these expanding wave solutions of the mathematical equations. Um, but that, you know, you can't be sure that's the correct explanation of what's going on. So it's it's beautifully mysterious, um, very elegant mathematics, um, but nothing is quite fitting together properly. You know, this has been a you know this has been a fascinating interview for me, and I would like to tell our listeners that if you think this is fascinating, we've covered approximately five percent <laughs> of the stuff that you see in uh, in Ian's book, which is quite frankly, as I said. The best book on the subject I've read since Asimov wrote the definitive book on the universe half a century ago. And um, I'm sure that some of our listeners would, well, I hope a lot of our listeners would just get out there and get that book. And I would like to see, for instance, Donald Trump get out there and get that book. Because <laughs> he doesn't seem to be too keen on science, so he ought to know what it is. But anyway, uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you, Ian? Um, I uh, the best way is via my website, um, which is um, let, let me actually. I just want to make sure I've. I, I well, what I'll do is I'll post the actual link along. Yeah, the post the link to the interview. So yeah, so um, they can get in touch with me via the website, and that way they can find out um, what other books I've done, what the latest news is, stuff like that. Um, I, I also have a few things, you know, what's going on in mathematics at the moment, because, you know, math is such a fascinating subject. That it, cosmology is only one of the things that people do with it. Um, and uh, I mean, I've always been fascinated by astronomy and cosmology from the time I, certainly from the time I was four or five. Our um, stories are identical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can remember in the New York Times sometime in like 1945 or 1946, they published an article that there was going to be an eclipse of the sun and it was going to start at such and such a time and it would reach totality. And I thought, how do they possibly know That's that? That's right. But it was fascinating. Yeah, but they do. I mean, thousands of years into the future or into the past, um, you can calculate the eclipses now to exquisite accuracy. Ah, but is the accuracy exquisite because chaos does not enter into these or just because chaos shows up 200 million years? I think it's because chaos shows up 200 million years in the future. Yeah. Uh, okay. And one other question that I'd like to ask you, which I think our listeners would like to have an answer. What projects are you working on? What am I working on at the moment? Okay. Um, I've got um, two new books coming out, one in March, one in July. The one in March is a little book. It's, it's called Infinity, a very short introduction. So it's a, a very small. It's a very small book on a very big concept. Um, Oxford University Press has a wonderful series of what they call very short introductions. These are little books. They're about forty percent of the length of a, a, a standard sort of popular science type book. Um, and they're on 
any there aren't topics in the arts, topics in philosophy, topics in science, topics in politics, um, everything. And um, they they let me do one on infinity, which I think is quite an interesting concept. I mean, mathematicians use it all the time, um, but it, 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 there are philosophical aspects, religious aspects, all sorts of things you can say about infinity. So it's a matter of trying to say this in a rather small book. Um, the other one I've got is um, is a book. The title is Significant Figures, which is a kind of mathematical um, pun. Um, yeah, I was looking yeah, for that. <laughs> so this is it's 25 lives and works of what I call the mathematical trailblazers, the um, people who made a real difference to the direction that mathematics takes. So Newton, of course, is in there. Um, if he weren't, the book is, if he was, it would be a pretty pathetic. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so it actually starts with Archimedes and it ends with a couple of modern mathematicians. I decided that living mathematicians should not go in, if only because they might complain about what I was Yes, but only because the ones who weren't included will be at your doorstep with a burning oil and That's right. So it it goes through people like Gauss and uh, Gödel and Turing. Um, Certainly hope you have George Cantor. (laughs) Yes, Cantor's in there. Ramanujan, the the amazing self-taught Indian genius um, who's amazingly good with formulas. And it ends up with... um, Benoit Mandelbrot, who did Fractals, who is a, a very unorthodox mathematician, but I think uh, very influential, and Bill Thurston, who is an American mathematician who died not too many years ago, who is one of the great pure mathematicians of the modern era. Fields yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. He, he yeah. was he was amazing. Um, Ian, this is this has been a fascinating interview, and if you don't let me do one with you on infin, uh, on the book on infinity, I'm going to be really, really, really upset. I I I, I promise now. <laughs> you have lots of witnesses that we will do an interview. Yes, and you're on We will tape. do an interview on the Infinity <laughs> Book when it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd okay, love to. Ian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very Thank much. You.